doing the garden, digging the weeds. Who could ask for more? Let us investigate the century of lies. It's not only inhumane, it is really fundamentally un-American. Send me a postcard, drop me a line. Dean at drugtruth.net. Indicate precisely what you mean to say. You're sincerely wasting away. Celebrating 64 broadcast affiliates and five years over the airwaves. Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? This is a Drug Truth Network retrospective. Part 1. My name is Dean Becker, host of the Drug Truth Network program, Century of Lies, Cultural Baggage, and the daily 420 Drug War News. Welcome to this retrospective. Five years we've been battling the forces of evil. Five years we've been disseminating the unvarnished truth about the drug war. Five years we've been challenging the experts of government, science, medicine, and the clergy to defend this policy of eternal drug war against our own people. Five years these drug warriors have stood their ground with silence. Five years they have instigated and escalated their jihad of drug prohibition through your silence as well. Today we take a look and a listen back over the last five years of the Drug Truth Network we begin with my first time on the airwaves doing the drug war news on KPFT's decades-old prison show. The audio now lost to the far reaches of space because no recording of that report was ever made. This is the host of the prison show, the patriarch of Houston's Pacifica family, Mr. Ray Hill. I saw this fellow by the name of Dean Becker in the radio station, and he's one of those activists that uh, tend to rub the cat hair the wrong way and make everybody a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, and the decision makers at the station weren't paying much attention to him, but uh, uh, from my perspective, I'm the guy that does the prison show. So the topic that Dean was talking about, this whole business of putting up a struggle against the drug wars, hits my topic in midstream because about half my audience inside Texas prisons are doing time because of the drug war. And most of them are good people, don't need to be doing time at all. So uh, if the station wasn't going to have him, I decided that I'd just adopt him and we'd incorporate his ideas on the prison show. But we didn't have to do that very long before the station realized this man had a valuable message and he branched out on his own and has certainly prospered ever since. Pretty much in tandem with my first appearance on the prison show, several of the late-night, early-morning talk and music programs began airing the precursors to what became known as the 420 Drug War News Reports. First among these were Reach Out in the Darkness and the After Hours program. In the beginning, I would travel to the station to do five- and ten-minute reports, but at the time, I was working as a project analyst for Enron, and so we learned how to do call-ins to save travel time. I'd actually begun fighting against the drug warriors in the online pages of the New York Times Drug Policy Forum in early 2000. There, I invited many of the same guests to do question and answer with the forum participants. Among those New York Times invitees were members of the European Parliament, Canadian senators, U.S. governors 
and the very first guest on the New York Times Forum, who became the very first guest on the very first cultural baggage program in late 2001. Superior Court Judge James P. Gray, author of the then-new book, Why the Drug War Has Failed and What We Can Do About It, a judicial indictment of the war on drugs. Sadly, that original program has also been lost to the far reaches of space. But never mind. Judge Gray's commitment and courage towards ending the drug war has remained consistent throughout. The following is taken from his most recent visit to the Century of Lies program on September 16th of 05. The message is just not working, Dean, and, and you know that, and I think your listeners increasingly are knowing that as well. But what we're doing now with our present drug policy is literally fueling children to join gangs and be part of the action. We're increasing crime. Uh, people don't realize this, but when we finally came to our senses and repealed drug pro or alcohol prohibition, uh, homicides went down nationwide 60% in one year. I'm convinced the same phenomenon will occur when we finally repeal drug prohibition. Uh, and we're <laughs> people also don't realize that Almost literally every dollar we put into the prosecution of nonviolent drug offenders is a dollar we take away from the prosecution of violent offenses. So violence is flourishing mostly because of the fact that it's being fueled by drug money and we're not putting our resources where it will really help us. It goes on and on, you know, about the, the civil liberties disaster and about the, the exportation of all of this money that, that undercuts entire literacy. Legitimate government worldwide. Uh, it's just a disaster in the making. As indicated earlier by Mr. Ray Hill, I did rub against the grain a little bit, and it took a while for the program director and station manager to give me my own program. Every other week at midnight. <laughs> this is Otis McClay, the then program director. Well, I mean, I don't know. You you came in and, and threatened me, and uh, you know. Uh, no, I, I, it's not that simple. Uh, no, the the issue of the drug war has, you know, when I was doing my show, we we did quite a few shows on the drug war. It was kind of an ongoing theme because the drug war is such a, an incredible assault against uh, every one of the uh, the Ten Amendments in the Bill of Rights, uh, and it was absolutely essential to have a show on. I don't remember why I put you on at midnight, but I think I tried to get you out of there as soon as possible. And it's really interesting that the show d did so well. Apparently, there are some other people out there in the world who notice that the drug war is uh, this, this, this really devastating assault on our civil rights. It's uh, um, filling up the prisons with people who shouldn't be in prison. It's costing us a fortune. Um, you know, to keep them there. It's costing us a fortune in the, 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 the taxes that are lost by having productive people not uh, being productive because they've been locked up for some kind of victimless crime. Uh, the whole thing is, is absolutely outrageous, and I think it was absolutely essential that you be on the air. And of course, you had done quite a bit of work You because it's it's educational. I mean, there are people who've never had to deal with any of the fallout of the drug war, um, you know, who, who probably don't even know what's going on. Most uh, grown-ups, so to speak, uh, think that it's something about, you know, kids or uh, um, 
bad people you know, until their kid gets elect, uh, gets uh, arrested. You know, and then suddenly they realize what the the drug war is all about. And the show should be available to those people before their kid gets arrested. So at the the very least, they can tell their kid what the dangers, uh, the real dangers of drugs are. I mean, marijuana is the only drug we know that has never been attributed to the death of any any person. And yet it's a very dangerous drug because uh, you could get arrested for using it. That's the danger. I mean, all of the danger comes from the drug war. As best I can recall, it was about July 4th of 2002 that Rourke Smith, who was doing the afternoon music show at KPFT, decided to uh, do a daily segment at 420, and we named it the 420 Drug War News. This is the earliest one I could find. It is from January 1st of 2003. It's the 420 Drug War News. This is Dean Becker the unvarnished truth, pointing out that the emperor has no clothes. This story from the DailyTimes.com. Poetic license, $1.5 trillion a year is being laundered through the world's banking system. Panama may now be getting a pat on the back. In December 1989, however, the country was invaded by the United States in a military operation aimed at kidnapping the Panamanian president, Manuel Noriega, and transporting him to the U.S. to stand trial for alleged violations of American law committed on his home turf, the only world leader ever to suffer this fate. A fluke drug bust did in the Panamanian dictator. U.S. involvement in Central America during the 1980s featured a level of government corruption matched by few other recent affairs. Guns to arm the counter-revolutionaries against Nicaragua's Sandinista government were flown south on airplanes owned by CIA-run cutout companies in contravention of U.S. federal law. Cocaine was the return cargo bound for the states courtesy of the Colombian drug cartels. Profits were laundered in between in Panama. These events competed for headlines with a twin scandal involving arms sales to Iran, money from which also went to help the Nicaraguan Contras. These criminal activities weren't just taking place under the eye of the U.S. government. They were a government creation, and high-ranking U.S. officials were dedicated to protecting the efforts at any cost. The late CIA Director William J. Casey, Assistant Secretary of State for Inter-American Affairs Elliot Abrams, and National Security Council staffer Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North together cooked up enough schemes to entertain conspiracy theorists for years. This, however, did not prevent President George W. Bush from appointing Elliot Abrams to a senior position in the U.S. National Security Council. This story comes from the Dallas Morning News. Ex-cop preaches against drug war. Howard Wildridge likes to think of himself as a modern Paul Revere, riding his horse across the countryside to raise an alarm. It's not foreign invaders he's warning of, however. The ex-cop is riding his horse cross-country to publicize what he thinks are America's failed drug laws. His T-shirt reads, quote, Cops say legalize pot. Ask me why, end quote. He and his pinto horse, Misty, spent 11 weeks traveling 1,400 miles between Denver and Chattanooga this fall. He said, we make 0.0 difference in anything to do with drugs and drug dealers. Instead, he favors legalizing marijuana and regulating it the way alcohol is. 
This is Dean Becker for 420 Drug War News. That song you hear in the background, 420, was by Guy Schwartz and the New Jack Hippies, the same folks who uh, I teamed up with when we recorded the new song, Stash of Bags, which you can hear if you tune into our website, which is at drugtruth.net. Back in the early days, Cultural Baggage was a one-hour program, and one of the earliest guests was Mr. Kevin Zeese who was then president of Common Sense for Drug Policy and who is today running for governor in the state of Maryland. The following is an extract taken from the September 27, 2002 Cultural Baggage Show. It features an editorial by yours truly about the beginnings of the DEA jihad against the medical marijuana patients as well as a discussion in this regard with Mr. Kevin Zeese. What if Osama bin Laden sent squads of armed men into U.S. cities to attack medical facilities? What if those terror squads stormed clinics, stole confidential medical records, and literally took medicine from the sick and dying? Well, that is precisely what the Drug Enforcement Administration is doing in California. The DEA and the White House want, to, want the public to believe that drugs are inherently connected with terrorism and that anyone who uses illegal drugs supports terrorists. In fact, it is the war on drugs that promotes terrorism, and the DEA and its law enforcement allies regularly commit terrorist acts. They take medicine from the seriously ill, jail their caregivers, and murder unarmed people with no evidence and no trial. Now, if you'd like to learn more about this, I would advise you to please go to the Marijuana Policy Project website, that's at uh, www.mpp.org. That's www.mpp.org. Now, I'm very pleased to announce that we now have online our first guest, a uh, gentleman I greatly admire for his perseverance and his attitude and his follow-through, uh, Kevin Zeese. Are you there, sir? Yeah, I'm here. How are you doing? Well, good evening, sir. It's good to have you uh, with us tonight. Glad to be here. Yes, sir. Uh, I know it's been a very eventful week, uh, clear across the nation from Sacramento to Washington, D.C. Could you tell us what you observed in Sacramento this week? Yeah, well, in Sacramento we had a, a large rally uh, in reaction to the uh, DEA's uh, uh, attacks on medical marijuana caregivers and patients in, in California. Hundreds of people from across the state, nearly a thousand probably, from across the state, uh, patients, their caregivers, students, some politicians uh, and other other people concerned with this issue uh, showed up uh, in Sacramento, the capital of uh, of California, to uh, protest the DEA's actions and to urge fed, uh, state officials of California to protect them from uh, the attack of John, of John Ashcroft's Justice Department. And uh, uh, the, uh, after meeting at the the uh, the Capitol building. And holding a rally there that, that was co-sponsored by uh, Senator John Vasconcelos, a, a long-term ally and a, a, a very senior senator in California. Uh, we had a procession that uh, went down to the Federal Building, and uh, there was a demonstration at the Federal Building um, uh, where where 29 people blocked the entrance to the, the Federal Building in a, in a symbolic effort to show their resistance uh, to federal enforcement, federal uh, overzealous enforcement 
of the medical marijuana laws. And these 29 people refused to move. They locked arms. Uh, some one was in wheelchair, and they uh, the, the the federal officials came and arrested them. And it was a quite a, uh, a moment. There was uh, a lot of angry people in the crowd. There were uh, only took uh, over an hour for these arrests to occur. It was a, a slow process and. I think there was a real strong symbol of uh, the, the strength of uh, the California medical marijuana movement and willingness to stand up against uh, the federal government. So it's the beginning of a campaign, and I think if we, are, if we pursue this aggressively, I think we'll succeed, and it'll be the uh, end of uh, the federal government's uh, war on medical marijuana. Even in recent weeks, the DEA has continued to conduct these raids on the sick and dying. The more things change, the more... They remain the same. The following is a promo piece featuring some of the guests who had been on the Cultural Baggage program. It was produced in mid-2003. On Cultural Baggage, we try to bring you the voices of reason, the voices of compassion. Nobel Prize winner, Milton Friedman. My main objection to the drug war is on moral grounds. I think it's a disgrace and a scandal. San Francisco attorney, Tony Serra. Now, because of war on drugs, our judicial system is once again tainted by informants at every level. Retired police officer Howard Wooldridge. Because police officers spend hundreds of thousands of hours in Texas looking for marijuana in underneath somebody's front seat, that detracts from public safety. Superior Court Judge James P. Gray. As soon as people realize what's happening, I promise you they will absolutely want to stand up in unison, shake their fists, and say, we've got to repeal drug prohibition. You know, we've had Nobel laureates and governors and congressmen and members of the European Parliament, but one that I'm perhaps most proud of as being our guest on the cultural baggage is the executive chairman of GW Pharmaceuticals, Mr. Jeffrey Guy. I, I understand that uh, just recently, within the past uh, couple of weeks, that uh, the Netherlands has now allowed for uh, a distribution of cannabis products through pharmacies, that Belgium is uh, considering following suit, that uh, we know now that Canada distributes medical marijuana to their patients. And I was wondering if you could give me your take on the situation in uh, America and I would consider the U.S. policy to just be stubborn and uh, superstitious. W would you give us your opinion? Well, obviously, I, I should be very careful and give my opinion on uh, policies of different countries. Uh, first of all, I, I think we can comment on the, the Dutch and Canadian experience. Uh, I think the Dutch solution is a very Dutch solution uh, and has really followed on from a series of liberalization measures that they have taken over a number of years. The patients are still requested and required to pay for these medicines, and the medicines have come in the form of herbal cannabis, which can be dispensed by the pharmacist. So the doctor in Holland, and indeed more appropriately in Canada, a lot of the doctors are not very happy that they do not have a product which has been tested rigorously in the way that every other medicine that they would prescribe has been tested. So they would have a situation where patients are taking a range of medicines because in complex conditions like multiple sclerosis or spinal cord injury or, or rheumatoid arthritis, for example, patients will be taking a range of medicines. All of these other medicines will have been tested to appropriate standards of quality, safety, and efficacy. But the doctor will not have uh, or not be able to rely on, those, on that rigorous testing for this herbal material. 
I believe the Dutch have considered that this uh, approach is an interim approach until pharmaceutical uh, products are available. And certainly uh, when one listens to the news from Canada, uh, the Canadian Medical Association is not uh, in favor of the doctors uh, uh, prescribing herbal uh, material of unknown provenance. Uh, we are, I understand that the major insurers that actually insure the doctors, for, for example, for malpractice, have indicated that they uh, are not happy to be insuring such practice. And I think that these measures uh, are interim measures, but demonstrate how carefully each of the countries have viewed this very, very difficult uh, situation. The countries have dealt with this, these matters compassionately in their own way. We are in the business of developing pharmaceuticals, and a pharmaceutical is a worthwhile medicine that is able to yield profit to its shareholders so that we can put more uh, money and resource back into, re in, into research. And uh, throughout Europe, I think the preferred route for the medical profession and for patients would be to be able to, to have a product prescribed, reimbursed either by the National uh, Health Service or the equivalent reimbursing agencies throughout each country in Europe, and to know that it is of, uh, of assured quality, safety, and efficacy. Now, the U.S. is very different in so much as the U.S. really hasn't embraced the debate with regard to the need that the patients have. And this has been very much an unmet need. It's been unmet by um, conventional pharmaceutical products and medicines. And that has been very well recognized in the United Kingdom, in Canada, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and throughout Europe. And I think the U.S. is yet to embrace that concept that the patient's have a very, very serious need that they're being exposed to some very potent uh, conventional pharmaceuticals, which are giving help, no doubt, in, in a number of cases, but also are accompanied by quite serious side effects. And when one considers the uh, extracts or the, the, or the components of the cannabis plant in comparison to some of these other very potent medicines, then the cannabis plant and its extracts provide a very favorable comparator in terms of fewer side effects and in terms of, rel of relative benefit. So one would hope that uh, the lessons that are being learned elsewhere may well fall upon uh, receptive ears in the U.S. In, in, in the years to come, but I, from, from my position I can only see that this will be a rather slow and, uh, and, and very um, resource-intensive process. You know, I'll be the first to admit that doing this one-man band operation, the audio suffers from week to week, but I hope you'll agree that the content is always there on the Drug Truth Network. You know, I've sent out hundreds of information packets to uh, various radio stations around the country trying to recruit them as affiliates, and contained in that packet is a CD which has the recording of an interview I did with Mr. Jack Cole. He spent 13 years as an undercover officer, and he's now president of Law Enforcement Against Prohibition. Now, let me tell you what the war on drugs was like in 1970. We didn't have much of a war or much of a drug problem at all in 1970. It was more a nuisance, really, than anything else. Certainly nothing that I think should have even uh, had police intervention, let alone a war on drugs, thinking about it today. And what I mean by that is, for instance, deaths caused by drug culture 
1970, you were less likely to die as a result of the drug culture in this country than you were to die from falling down your own steps in your own house. Less likely to die of the drug culture than you would choking to death on your own food at dinner. And as far as I know, we haven't started a war on stairways or dinner yet, but who knows? <laughs> we still have time. <laughs> so this wasn't really much of a problem, but it was a problem to us because when we hit the streets, there weren't a whole lot of drug dealers out there. And the, the drugs that were out there were almost entirely what we called soft drugs, marijuana, hashish, some LSD, psilocybin, you know, mushroom type thing. Hard drugs like methamphetamine, cocaine, heroin were practically non-existent in 1970, certainly non-existent compared to what they are today. So this caused us quite a, a dilemma. How are we going to show that this war is an absolute necessity so our bosses can keep this money coming in? And our bosses had the answer to that. As you say, they may have said fudge a little. They said uh, maybe we could inflate these statistics a little. They gave us every go-ahead to lie, and lie we did. We lied about everything we did in the first year. We inflated everything we did. Uh, <clears throat> let me explain how we did that. First, we, we were looking for drug dealers, and since we couldn't just find a whole lot of drug dealers, what we did was we sent our undercover people in to infiltrate small groups of friendship groups, 10 to 15 people, maybe in college, college kids or high school kids or kids in between. Back then, you know, we had a lot of hippies around, and, and they were all using soft drugs. Uh, and... They were also doing something that the administration didn't like at all. They were protesting the Vietnam War. So we could pretty much do what we wanted to with those folks. And the truth be told, they still pretty much do what they want to with drug users, especially in the state of Texas, and more especially in the gulag city of Houston, which leads the world in the incarceration of its own people. Jack Cole was our guest back on November 25th of uh, 2003. Since that point in time, we've had more than two dozen other members of law enforcement against prohibition as guests on the Drug Truth Network radio programs. We'll have a little more of this retrospective on this week's Cultural Baggage program, as well as the latest updates from the Drug Truth Network reporters. But we're going to close out this Century of Lies program with a little segment from Valerie Corral of the Women's Association for Medical Marijuana. They have a garden in Santa Cruz that provides for sick, but mostly for dying patients. More than two dozen have died since they started this effort. From the January 13, 2004 Cultural Baggage Program. What happens in the garden, and we have a sign over it that says love grows here. What happens in the garden are, is many, it's a, it's, it's a multi-level approach of dealing not only with treating oneself, growing one's own medicine, but it's a place where people come together. That people come to uh, 
be part of something greater than themselves because it, the premise upon which WAM was founded is, and that's the Women's, W-O slash Men Alliance for Medical Marijuana, um, it, it, the premise is to give what you can and take what you need. So that many of us, who people who are ill, are disenfranchised by our illness. We're, we often have a different group of friends after our illness, or many people walk away because it's difficult to watch suffering. It's a hard thing to do. Um, and what we found is that while marijuana brings us together, it's hardly what holds us together. What holds us together is a, is a deep understanding to suffering, having been been made witness not only of our own but of others, and a commitment to alleviating that. It is my hope that you are developing a better understanding and an appreciation of this abomination of drug war. And I say once again that there is no truth, justice, logic, scientific fact, or medical data sufficient to validate this policy of drug war. We have been duped. The drug lords run both sides of this equation. I urge you to please visit our website, which is endprohibition.org. There you can link up with more than a dozen of the best drug reform organizations on the planet. Prohibido Istak Ivalesco. For engineer Philip Guffey, this is Dean Becker urging you to visit our website, which is drugtruth.net. <laughs>